and welcome to episode 1587 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I'm joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Pretty good. How are you? I'm tired, but I am well. It's kind of a constant when we do our Friday pods with, with both of us, I guess, Yeah, definitely with you. Yeah, it's like, hey, it's been a whole week, yeah. and now I'm ready to be done with the week. But yeah. always happy to talk to you, Ben. Likewise, likewise, yeah. yes. So I have a follow-up to something we talked about last week when we dissected Clayton Kershaw's second Hankook tire commercial, the one where he's <laughs> on the mound and he's mulling over which pitches to throw, and for some reason he considers throwing a changeup to lefties, which he almost never does in real life, and we were wondering, well, why would they write this into the commercial, or why would Kershaw okay it? Wouldn't he say to someone, hey, I, I wouldn't actually be thinking of throwing a, a changeup to lefties here and maybe they would change the script or something and we just figured well I guess he doesn't care that much he's just kind of cashing the check and he'll just say whatever the script tells him to say but we got a theory here from listener Joe that I had not considered and he says I recall a tale that Greg Maddox would allow a batter to really rip one off him during spring training in order to set him up for the regular season what if that Clayton Kershaw on Cook tire changeup is like way, way deeper than the Greg Maddox story? Oh what God. if Kershaw thinks that Juan Soto will remember the commercial and think, oh, he's considering throwing me a changeup here? And then he gets locked up on a fastball or completely fooled by the slider. And I had not thought about this, but maybe Kershaw outthought us and outthought everyone. And he just put this out there to try to confuse batters. And maybe it's working because he has a 1.5 ERA right now and he's coming off yet another strong start. Could be because of the tire commercial. So then the question becomes, does he have any actual conviction about the quality of of Hankook tires? Or did he simply (laughs) see an opportunity to fool us all and this was just the vehicle um (laughs) and maybe he prefers a different tire brand entirely but uh they didn't ask him uh, to come on and he's like well this is my opportunity to to plant a tiny seed of doubt yes i maintain that that is a ridiculous theory but (laughs) it is a delightful ridiculous theory And I like very much the idea that pitchers are so keen to press their advantage that they will uh, take any opportunity. And I'm sure that uh, if this theory were to be true, that Clayton Kershaw would be delighted that he was given one that was so enriching. Although I don't know, you know, I don't know Juan Soto. (laughs) You'll be shocked to learn that we are not pals. Uh Um, And so I don't know what his uh, viewing habits are like, but... I would imagine that this particular approach would really only, only work for someone who is watching as much MLB TV as we are and getting this commercial over and over and over. Is this commercial on at other times or is that only when it's on? Because that's the only time I've seen it, but I don't see that many commercials except when I'm watching baseball. So I will admit that I have seen it like, you know, there's been we've talked about this recently. Just there are a lot of sports. There's just a lot of sports on right now. And so last night I checked in on some of the NHL action because, you know, Seattle is going to get an NHL franchise. Yes, I've heard. And I realized that I thought I knew 
a lot more about hockey than I actually know. (laughs) That has become clear to me in checking in on the NHL playoffs. But that commercial played during the NHL playoffs. And I will note that it was the second one. It was not the first one where he drives the car. So perhaps there are other opportunities. But I think you really need the repetitive MLB TV experience to drive it home. Right. Drive it home. Oh no, Ben, I didn't even mean to do it. Yes, you, you called the commercial a vehicle earlier. Did as I? Well. Yeah. Oh God, I'm a monster. So, so anyhow, I don't think this is actually what's going on, but I like the idea that it, that it is. And perhaps, perhaps, Ben, the actual target audience um, for such a, a fake out is not a current major leaguer, but a minor leaguer who might be home. <laughs> and watching MLB TV and uh, and is going to come up and think, I might have to deal with that changeup. So right. so he is he is undermining the next generation of baseball players, and I applaud true. his efforts. Yeah, because Soto's probably not watching that much MLB TV because he is on MLB, MLB TV. TV. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, okay, well, it's probably the, the velocity boost that Kershaw has gotten more so than the tire commercial that yes. has contributed to his performance so far. But I like the theory. So thank you for sharing it with us, Joe. Yeah. Gosh, what a, you know, we don't have a lot of nice stuff right now. <laughs> Our <laughs> amount of nice stuff is fairly limited. But Clayton Kershaw's 2020 counts as nice stuff. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, he's he's got a, as you noted, an uh, 1.5 ERA. He's got a FIP in the low threes. He's got he's striking out almost a whole batter more per nine. Got that mm-hmm. velo tick. Yep. Strikeout rates up four points. Yeah, I like it's, it. It's been fun to watch. Been fun to watch. And there are 20 games on today, Friday. Granted, a lot of seven-inning doubleheaders in that mix, but 20 games, that is one short of the record that we have previously determined for the most major league games on one day, so that's fun. And I believe I saw the most games on a single day since 1974. Yeah, I think the record was September 7th, 1970. That was when there were 21 with nine doubleheaders, but maybe there was another 20-game day a few years later. So that's that's quite a, a long time mm-hmm. between having a lot of games. So here's my question about this, Ben. I heard last night as I was delighting in the White Sox broadcast, and allow me to just say as a quick aside, you know, we, I think you and I have sought out Benetti's calls for a long time because he's just such a, a great fun broadcaster. I am so pleased that the White Sox being good means that more people have occasion and reason to check in on their broadcasts and thus are are experiencing that booth. Uh, right. It's just great fun, even when he is not explaining Pokemon, but especially <laughs> when he is explaining Pokemon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Stone-Benetti combo is great. And yeah. we always talk about Benetti, of course, friend of the show, listener of the show. Yes. But Stone is great, too, with yes. Benetti. They are great together. And uh, I think Stone working with Hawk Harrelson for so many years, it's a different vibe, yes. I think, in that broadcast booth. And uh, yes. I know some people like the way it was, too, I'm sure. But uh, it's a little bit different. 
different, and I think it has allowed Stone to showcase a, a different side of himself as well. So I think he has only been enhanced by working with Jason. Yes, he. they are just a really terrific pairing, and I heard about this game thing uh, mm-hmm. on that broadcast because I knew that there were a bunch of games today, but I had not realized just how significant the number was. And now I've pivoted over to the Cup 4 account, and I'm watching the Royals uh, mascot just destroy Pikachu, and it <laughs> is it makes me laugh every time. I'm curious, though, given how many games they have to get in today, why the first one doesn't start till 2.10 Eastern. I yeah. thought we would have some breakfast baseball given how many games we are due for today, and uh, it's gonna be a it's gonna be a quite long day for everyone. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, so that part's uh that's a little that's a little surprising, but uh, mm-hmm. so many games. So we have so many emails. We got a lot of great emails lately, and we want to clear out some of the backlog today. So I have saved some that Sam and I didn't get to on our last episode, and we'll get to them today. One thing I wanted to say before we start on that, Sam and I talked a little bit about Tom Seaver on our last episode and how Chance kind of governed where he ended up pitching, why he ended up with the Mets, and then when he went to the Reds, and when he went to the White Sox, and then you know back to the Mets and all over the place. We talked about that, but we didn't so much talk about his development before he got to the big leagues. And this is something that I was not aware of until I was reading the latest edition of Craig Wright's newsletter pages from baseball's past baseballspast.com check it out highly recommend it but i would have assumed that tom seaver was always really good just because he was so great early on in his career he was really great in triple a from the start of his pro career in 1966 he was the rookie of the year in 1967 and was already really great But you could have assumed, based on that strange start to his career, that there was this lottery, this derby for Seaver, and only three teams were interested. That tells you that he was not the biggest prospect ever. And the reason for that is that physically he was sort of a late bloomer. So reading here from Craig's newsletter, for a player who was a nearly unanimous choice to the Hall of Fame on his first ballot, Tom Seaver had a decidedly odd beginning to his career. Both of his parents were athletic, had played basketball in their high school days, and were excellent golfers. His father had also played basketball and football at Stanford University. Their son enjoyed playing high school baseball and basketball, but no one would have guessed they were looking at a future professional athlete. He was better at basketball, where he had a fine shooting touch, but he did not have a basketball player's physique and was only five foot eleven. On the diamond, he had a so-so fastball and relied more on breaking pitches and control to get batters out. He did not even make the varsity squad until his senior year. There were no scholarship offers when Seaver left high school, and he instead worked a warehouse job and enlisted at the Marine Corps Reserve. A year later, he began attending the local community college and decided to pursue a career in dentistry. Interesting. Dr. Seaver. It turned out that Tom was a late bloomer physically. He grew two inches after high school, and between his time lifting crates of raisins at the warehouse and his training with the Marines, he added 30 pounds to his frame. When he began pitching for the Fresno City College team, he was surprised to discover he was now the hardest thrower on the team, adding a great fastball to what he had already learned about setting up batters as more of a finesse pitcher had turned Seaver into a formidable pitcher. And that's interesting because... People always talk about how cerebral he was and how well he thought about pitching and remembered every pitch he threw. And when he got older and he lost his best fastball, he was still really great. He was really good into his 40s, and he kind of transitioned into almost a, a junk baller phase and was still really effective. 
And Craig is suggesting that maybe that's because he sort of started out that way, unlike the typical prototypical ace he didn't come up as the biggest guy with the best fastball so he sort of learned to pitch like a a mortal and then became immortal and so he had the physique and the stuff and the frame and all of that to go with the mentality of someone without all those gifts and that's kind of the perfect combination so I guess if you want to develop the ideal athlete maybe they actually won't be early bloomers and and huge at a young age although you'd think that in many cases they might be discouraged from continuing to pursue a career in athletics or they might just get overlooked by coaches they might not get a chance you know because they can't compete with bigger people at that age that maybe they would just gravitate toward other careers like Seaver almost did, you know, wanted to become a dentist. So there could be other would-be Seavers out there who did become dentists, and, and that's fine. We need dentists too, <laughs> but uh, but there might be some of those. So it's kind of like he threaded the needle where he got this boost of, you know, knowing what it was like to pitch without a great fastball before he had one but also didn't get pushed away from sports permanently. Yeah, it seems like it would be a very difficult balance to to strike and would require, how do I even want to describe the sort of mentality I, I expect it would require? Like on the one hand, you would you would need to be sort of dogged and determined, which I suppose is common to athletes who become professionals, regardless of when exactly their sort of native talent presents itself. But I think you'd also maybe need to not take it less seriously, but sort of you'd need to be able to be a good sport about where you kind of where your your talent suggests you will go and then be surprised by, hey, I found a bunch more velocity than I was expecting because I, you know, grew or or what have you and had projection on the frame. Because I think that (laughs) it's very easy to get discouraged when we fail. This is why I haven't actually finished any cross stitch that I've ever started because they don't look good. So you need to be sort of game to to put it in its proper perspective and not be overly discouraged by early failure, but still determined enough to to sort of keep at it in a way that I think is probably uncommon for a lot of folks. So yeah, it's a it's an interesting sort of blend of things. Although here I am talking about how being able to put things in their proper perspective is important. And I know that he was, you know, he he talked a lot about how the Marine Corps sort of instilled a discipline that was really important to his success as an athlete. So I don't know if my own example with Seaver is especially applicable, but it is a, it's an odd combination of things or perhaps a rare combination of things that mm-hmm. um, I think you're right. I think a lot of those folks just become dentists, which <laughs> yeah. I don't know. That's a lot of school. It's a lot of yeah, school as a fallback. It's it's its own kind of determination, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, I kind of identified with that because uh, like my dad, I was sort of a late bloomer myself. Like neither of us grew until we were 16, 17. So up till that point, I was always one of the smallest kids in my class. And my dad was like, this was me too. Don't worry. It'll happen someday. Uh-huh. And uh, when you're like 14 and it hasn't happened, it's kind of hard to believe that. Right. And it can be kind of tough because you know kids are are mean not that they were 
particularly mean to me, but that can be the case. And, you know, when you're small at that age, you don't kind of command the respect that someone does who's just kind of like more developed physically. And so I always felt like it was kind of an advantage for me in the long run, because like before I did eventually grow in high school, you know, you had to like find other ways to sort of relate to people or interact with people. I felt like it made me kind of better at just, uh, I don't know, getting along with people or having a sense of humor or something because it was like I wasn't going to intimidate anyone you know I wasn't going to like be the the biggest guy that people were going to automatically look to or something and so if I wanted to have that kind of relationship with people then I think it helped to just kind of like you know you have to find other ways to hold people's attention I guess and also just like the fact that I was not the the biggest guy just kind of made it easier for me to pursue intellectual pursuits, I think, which uh, maybe I would have done anyway. But, you know, I was on some sports teams and I wasn't bad, but I wasn't such a standout that I harbored any huge aspirations there. I would rather read and play video games and stuff and watch baseball. And it turns out that all those things that I did are now what I do just kind of (laughs) as a job, which uh, worked out in the long run. So there were times if I could go back and tell 12-year-old Ben, it's okay, you're uh, you're, you're tiny now, but uh, you won't always be tiny and also maybe you will benefit from this tiny face in, in the long run. So I didn't turn out to have a great fastball ever though, but uh, maybe it, it helped as someone who has to entertain people professionally now. I think that was probably helpful at the time. This is like my theory that the fact that this is a very strange sentence that I'm about to say aloud, and I want to recognize up front that it is kind of awkward. I'm going to say that. I'm going to say that up front. Ben, no, I'm not going to phrase that as a question because then it puts you in an awkward spot. So um, I think that I would not be alone in in noticing that teens seem to be much more fashionable and sort of put together in their appearance than they were when we were teens. Like uh-huh. teens are... They've like learned all these tricks and secrets, and they are not awkward. I mean, many of them are still awkward because they're teens, but yeah. the average rate of awkwardness seems to be much lower. And mm-hmm. I worry that it will mean that we end up with kind of bad stand-up comedy in the future. <laughs> yeah, because I I think it's important to one's ability to relate in that way to sort of go through an awkward phase. Right? Yeah. right? You got to be. You got to be awkward and have some pimples and not Mm -hmm. know what to do with your eyebrows and the hair is, you know, you need that in order to be funny. (laughs) Yeah, I I think so too. Yeah. And so, So. yeah, Instagram is maybe uh, spoiling the next generation of stand-ups. Because they're too attractive. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And that's an awkward thing to say because they're teens. But you know what I'm trying to say. They're pulled together in a way that I find very intimidating. Yes. And so I think they will be less funny. Yes. And we're going to get, oh, no, and now the teens are going to come for me and they're going to make fun of me on TikTok and I'm never going to see it because I don't know how to make it work, Ben. <laughs> Aren't cargo pants back, though? <laughs> well, so this I've, is... This I've is seen the... articles suggesting that cargo pants are back. Not that I would know, but... Uh... <sighs> 
but I was aware of them on occasion when they were first in. Oh man, I think that a lot of stuff from the '90s has come back, and I think, yeah, that always um, happens. and I think that that might be the latest thing. Mm-hmm. Although, and I don't know what the exact demographic breakdown of our podcast is, so this concern will probably not resonate with our male listeners. But to everyone else, we're not doing low cut jeans again. Okay, <laughs> we're protesting. We're saying no. <laughs> Okay. We've gone a very weird route with this uh pod, but uh yeah. that's that's okay. Um I think I think Tom Seaver would also hate low cut jeans. They're <laughs> bad. They're not flattering on anyone, Ben. And you should all be awkward so that you can be funny later. <laughs> What's going yeah. on? I don't know. <sighs> hey, William Testadio is back. Did you know that? I did not know that. Yeah, he's uh he's the twenty ninth man on the twins roster for Friday's doubleheader. He is well, back from you? the alternate site, so that's great. The Would season has finally really started when Williams is a part of it. Okay. Yeah. Let's get to some emails. Here's a question from Ian who asks, what are the off-the-field benefits to acquiring another team's catcher, assuming mm. said catcher is a willing participant? This occurred to me when the Padres traded for two catchers from their own Super West Division, catchers whose old teams make up 30% of the Padres' remaining games. Since you can't nab a team's analyst or coach midstream, is snagging a team's catcher the next best thing to their network password? Presumably you would be getting A, a glimpse of a team's book on mutual opponents, B, information that team has on how to pitch your own hitters, and C, an understanding of the team they came from, at least the pitching side, Is this valuable? I feel like I've heard this, but is it quantifiable? I've also heard that rubbing cut potato on your face makes your mustache grow in faster, but you can't confirm that on baseball reference either. And uh, I guess relevant, there was a a game earlier this week where the Padres beat the Angels and Jason Castro, the catcher who went from the Angels to the catcher to the Padres, hit a tie-breaking two-run double in the eighth inning, which sort of opened up the game against the Angels, and the Padres end up taking that one. So that's maybe an example of this at work. And I think one aspect of it, we've been asked many times about do catchers hit better against pitchers they've caught before Mm -hmm. because they know their stuff, they know when they might throw certain pitches. And I did look into this for an article at The Ringer a couple years ago, and I found that there is some small effect there that it does seem that when you adjust for everything you have to adjust for, catchers do do a bit better than you'd expect against uh, former battery mates. But that's a not huge effect, and it's just a, a individual thing. So Ian's really asking about the intelligence value that they bring over to their new clubhouse. I imagine that there is some, right? Because there are going to be... How do I want to put this? I mean, I think that front offices are pretty savvy at being able to look at results on the field and use that data to inform their understanding of an opponent. Right. And so it is not as if the only mechanism they have to assess and sort of endeavor to predict, you know, a particular pitcher's approach to their hitters or what have you is to talk to a human being, right? Because they, Mm -hmm. you know, they have... They have all of their StatCast data. They have all the results. They can watch the guy and have their advanced scouts say, here's, you know, here's stuff, here's stuff. You know, Mm -hmm. that's what they say. They say stuff because that's how precise they are. But I would imagine that there are insights into the club, either the process by which they approach their pregame prep or how a particular 
pitcher, you know, sort of thinks about the game, how likely they are to get flustered in particular moments, that sort of stuff that would be useful. You know, they they probably, I don't want to say this about a particular trade because I don't think that I don't have any special insight that would suggest this, but like, you know, I would imagine that, and we heard this to be true when the news was breaking of the Astro sign stealing, like intelligence of that variety would be extremely useful yeah. uh, if something like that existed, which again, I'm not suggesting is the case in the case of the Padres acquiring guys. But, you know, so if they were aware of that sort of thing, if they said, hey, like my experience is that this starter you have is tipping pitches and now I'm here to help him stop doing that. I think that would be valuable. So I think mm-hmm. there is intelligence that is actionable, but I don't want to overstate how much there is because I suspect that, you know, if you have good analysts and you have good advanced scouts, you're going to spot a lot of the stuff that a catcher might tell you. Does that mm-hmm. sound like a reasonable answer, Ben? Yeah, I was going to say something similar that I, I think this probably matters less than it used to. Yeah. Because now you just have so many alternative sources of information. Right. You know every pitch that has been thrown, whereas in the past you might not have had any of that information. And so you just might not even know what a guy throws or when he throws it. And all of that can just be automated and boiled down into a scouting report now. And you've got video and you've got everything. So I think it probably matters less than it did, but it might still matter. And yeah, if there's tipping pitches going on, that might still matter. And it's got to be a weird mental adjustment. Like neither Jason Castro nor Austin Nola had been with their old teams for a very long time. But imagine if you're a longtime catcher who's been working with the same pitching staff for years, and maybe you go back to like the beginning of your career with a pitcher who's been on that team the same time. And for that whole time, you've been devoted to making that pitcher better. And then you get traded overnight. It's now your job to beat that pitcher. And maybe people are asking you, okay, what do I need to know about this guy? How do I, how do I beat him? And your job just goes from trying to hide all of that to revealing it just right away. And I wonder whether there's any hesitation or even like almost an unwritten rule of, you know, I'm not going to give away all the secrets because these are my friends and teammates and now I have new teammates but they're not really my friends yet and suddenly I'm expected to give up all of this information that's uh, puts you in a strange spot yeah it would put you in a very strange spot and I would imagine that the intelligence that you have that is the most actionable has sort of the shortest shelf life yeah right like if it's tipping pitches that probably gets sorted or yeah or like signs you know right change their signs so yeah you maybe you have insight into that or maybe I guess another place that it might come up is if there's a guy who has an injury of some sort that hasn't necessitated an an IL stint. Um, And so you might have a good sense of the overall health of an opponent, but that probably, the shelf life on that probably decays pretty rapidly. Am I using that correctly? Anyway, I think that the stuff that would have the biggest impact would probably be fairly short-lived, but you know, you do have, you do have some insight there that I think is, you know, you benefit from actually knowing the person and having a sense of them in a way that isn't necessarily going to show up in the data and how big a difference that ends up making. Probably small. Those mm-hmm. those sorts of insights probably have a marginal impact on your efficacy or the team's efficacy on the field, but it's not nothing I would expect. 
Yeah, I think so too. And the other thing, though, is that there is probably a, a penalty, something that goes in the opposite direction, which right. is that the new catcher now has to learn a whole new pitching staff. Right. And pitching staffs are really big now. If you hadn't noticed, there are a lot of pitchers on teams and a lot of pitchers per game. And I know that Craig Wright, the aforementioned author of Pages from Baseball's Past, when he used to work for teams, he did some studies that showed that it it seems like there is a cost that when a catcher changes teams midseason, that his impact on pitchers, you know, goes in the other direction for a while. Like it does seem to take a while to learn that stuff and improve as a receiver and as a game caller and all of that. And so if you're the Padres who just, you know, on paper, maybe you upgraded with Nolan Castro, but you also lost like Hedges, who is a great defensive catcher and just people who knew those arms and had worked with right. them for a while. And they're trading for those guys at midseason when it's not like you have spring training to get to know everyone. It's just, you know, right into the fire. So I would think that there is potentially some cost there just to not knowing what pitches to call or or when a pitcher likes to throw a certain thing or, you know, is this a day when he has his good stuff? Do you even know if you haven't caught his stuff right. before? So there's a lot that I think takes some time to learn. So I would guess that that maybe eats away at whatever intelligence edge you get. Yeah, I, oh gosh, I wish we asked this question on our shift, or I asked this question before our shift debate episode. Mm -hmm. I would love to know, like, the rate, if the rate of cross-ups changes in a demonstrable way after a catcher is traded. That would be super interesting because, yeah, you don't, you don't, you don't necessarily have experience catching that particular pitcher's repertoire and you might imagine that for non-fastball pitches you could get you could get in a bad way fairly quickly yeah it would be very interesting to see so sports Mm -hmm. info solutions get on that cross-up tracking we're curious (laughs) inquiring minds want data Related question from Andrew, who says, while teams and institutions like Fangraphs track pitchers' pitch selection and sequencing, I was wondering if any effort is made to track catchers' desired sequencing and pitch location. Unless pitchers shake off enough signs to nullify their influence, it seems to me that catchers would fall into habits of calling for pitches in the same location, preferring a high fastball instead of a low breaking ball on a 1-2 count, for example, that are common from pitcher to pitcher on a staff. In addition, one could note how a pitcher's pitch selection changes from each member of a catching platoon, that is, if there is a difference worth noting. And this is something that I think remains sort of a mystery or, you know, remains an area where we have a lot to learn pitch sequencing. And sometimes it's tough to know whether the catcher is calling the shots or the pitcher is or the bench is. So that complicates things. And are they just following the scouting report or are they working in their own preferences and intuition? So it's sort of tough to isolate the catcher's effect. I did do an article years ago at Grantland where I tried to look at Yadier Molina's tendencies and compared them to his backup catchers. Not that his backup catchers ever really played at the time, but to the extent that they did, I tried to look for some preferences and I'll link to that. But it's hard, you know, you can sometimes find differences, but you don't necessarily know if the differences are 
beneficial or detrimental, and you don't know if they're entirely attributable to the catcher, but there's probably something there. And if you were to ask me what's the area where there's still some significant source of value that we're not quite quantifying, I would guess that it's probably that, that that's a leading candidate just because you're involved on every pitch and just in the way that framing matters a lot because it's every pitch. Well, you have to call every pitch too. And so there's a lot of opportunity to add or subtract value there if it's possible to do that. And the fact that Jeff Mathis is still a major leaguer suggests that a lot of teams believe that there is value to that. Yeah, I think that... I think that's the exact right way to think about it, that there is likely some benefit. Sometimes it might be quite significant. Other times it might be small, but because it is every pitch, it could compound quite quickly. I'm curious, oh gosh, how how we would properly attribute that set of decision-making to a catcher versus you know them looking at their little card because mm-hmm. so many of them look at their little wristbands or their right. little cards. Does it seem like everyone has a card now? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. They've, they've all got cards. Pitchers have cards, outfielders, catchers, they all have cards. Yeah, and I imagine this is fallout from the Astros, right, that you are just the teams, even even with that matter seemingly done and dusted, hmm, <laughs> the paranoia persists. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder, given the shift to sort of pre-printed cards and whatnot how much is still being left to the discretion of the catcher versus an analyst somewhere i mean they're still sitting there sort of working through stuff with the pitcher but gosh it has been a noticeable source of increased time of game to me Mm. that's not the purpose of this question but that's just a thought that i had it's like sometimes Mm -hmm. you're like hey guys can you get it together yeah But yes, I would imagine that game calling is a place where a good and expert game caller, and there are guys who have a a pretty sterling reputation there, and sometimes that reputation diverges from their reputation as pitch framers, which I find Mm -hmm. interesting. But yeah, I would imagine that there's sort of a well of unexamined or known value that's being added there, and it would be hard to tease out, but it would be really, really cool if we could. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, and there might be cases where catchers try to be random and try not to repeat patterns right. and, and they end up doing it even more. That that happens sometimes when people, you know, try to make a list of random numbers or something, then they, they end up doing it in a sort of predictable way, like right. the, the Benford's Law thing. But also there's an element of like intuition to it where sometimes it's not necessarily about, well, what's the the best pitch to call in this count with this pitcher, but sometimes it's about how the batter reacts to an earlier pitch. Like, did he look like he was seeing something well? Did he look comfortable? And I guess you could be deceived by that sometimes too, but, uh, but there is an element of that where players will say that they do that and that that matters. So yes, I would like to know the answer to this, but I do not. But I, I think that's an area where maybe teams have done more work and maybe there will be more public work in the future. Yeah. 
We did have Harry Pavlidis on episode 686 years ago to talk about some work he did on game calling, but it was pretty rudimentary. It was looking at the total impact a catcher has and then subtracting framing and everything else that we can quantify and saying that what's left over is game calling. So it didn't really specify how a catcher was helping by calling pitches. That's kind of the next step. Okay, Nick says, Recently, 48-year-old Manny Ramirez signed with the Sydney Blue Sox of the Australian Baseball League. Does this news make you happy or sad? How do you feel in general when an old player signs a deal with a very low-level league? I generally... Hmm. How do I generally feel? I think how I feel tends to be dictated by what we know of the player's own experience of continuing to play baseball. Mm. Because... I think that there is, even at an advanced age, you know, depending on just how low level the league is, there might still be an appreciable skill gap Mm -hmm. that exists between a player even in their late 40s over, you know, indie league players who are quite a bit younger. And even though some of the physical skill has deteriorated, they still are able to kind of hold their own. I tend to feel very badly for people when they are publicly embarrassed. Yeah. But what embarrasses us varies person to person. Yeah. And so it could be that, you know, you just really love baseball and you want to keep playing it and you feel good in your body and the setting is sort of immaterial to you and you do not experience being on that field as embarrassing because you are on a field at all at, Mm -hmm. you know, 48 or whatever. And so you're, you're just content to be doing the thing you like and you're not bothered by the level of competition. I think that I tend to like it when people are not fussy about themselves. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so there's something that I find very endearing about players who are just like I just want to play baseball and right. it yeah. it doesn't have to be so it is serious it is still professional it's not like he's you know in a softball league somewhere but I don't say that like softball isn't good I just mean like he's not in like an amateur you know neighborhood thing mm-hmm. but so I think that if your experience of it is I just want to keep playing because I'm not done yet and they'll have me and I'll have them and we'll have a good time and it doesn't need to be mean any more than that right it doesn't have to be a commentary about the endurance of the human spirit or how we all Mm -hmm. age and how nothing is you can't you know count on anything including your own body it can just be a guy playing a game right that's nice i think there are times where guys get out there and it becomes clear that the the physical skill has deteriorated to the point that sort of the practice can't overcome it and then it feels yucky Mm -hmm. And I don't like like to see people embarrassed. So then it feels bad. But if the player's sort of approach and attitude toward it is, I get to go play baseball, then I think that's great. Yeah, I think so too. If it's a a sort of a sideshow thing or a money-making thing, like, you know, Jose Canseco showing up for one game or whatever, then eh. But if it's just someone who really likes playing baseball, as you said, that it almost improves my opinion of that person. Like it's just, it's clear that they just really love the game and they want to be out there. And if they're having fun, then I think that should be something we're all happy about, right? It's, It's like when people 
say when a player's coming to the end of his major league career and people are saying, you know, oh, he should hang it up or it's it's time to go or something. And I always feel like, you know, hang on as long as you can, as long as it's bringing you some satisfaction and as long as you like being there, that's great. And that whole thing about like they're going to tarnish their legacy or, or something like that, I don't think there's that much to that because the old performance is what it was and the stats are frozen so you know they did what they did and now if they're in diminished form and they're still playing it doesn't change what they accomplished previously I I guess you know if you see a 48 year old Manny Ramirez in the ABL you probably won't be as impressed by him as you would have if you'd seen him in his prime but I think if you understand that it's a 48-year-old Manny Ramirez, then that's okay. And I guess it can be sort of a reminder of your mortality and that you see this person who doesn't look the same and doesn't play the same. But if they want to be there and if it's bringing them some joy, then that's great. I, I think it all depends on their goal and their mindset. Like if they're in denial about their slipping skills and they still think I'm going to make it back or, you know, they're bitter that they're not still in the big leagues or something, then that might be bad. But if they just say, hey, I'd rather do this than whatever else I would be doing, (laughs) then that's fine with me. Great. Go get it. Yeah. I also think, I think the point you made about us understanding sort of where they are in their career is a really valuable one because we don't we shouldn't expect that a 48-year-old Manny Ramirez or oh gosh what's I don't want to always use him as an example especially since I just said that I don't want to feel embarrassed for other people unless they do but like a 40-year-old Albert Pujols is mm-hmm. just going to look different he's going to play differently but I also think that we can acknowledge that if any of us tried to play professional baseball even as young people we would look really silly <laughs> and be bad at it you know Monday the Padres played the Rockies and Fernando Tatis Jr made this incredible snag in the infield on a very hard hit liner off the bat of Sam Hilliard and he caught the ball after leaping for it and it knocked him down like the force of it knocked him down but he was fine and able to do it and I just I saw that and I was like I would turn to dust I would just be a pile of dust if I tried to play professional baseball. It's so hard. These guys are so incredible. And so I think that it's not fun to watch the diminished version because we do have this mental image of prime Pujols or prime Ramirez and what that meant on the field. And it's hard for us to forget that part because it was such the image is so indelible and they were so good. But I also think that like doing it at all at that age, um, which is not old for a human person, but is quite senior for a baseball player, is its own kind of accomplishment. I think it's hard to hold on to that feeling over the course of an entire season, mm-hmm. which is part of why our experience of pool holes is what it is, because you do look at him and you're like, oh, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, he gets to decide when he's done. So... uh Uh, at least as long as he has a contract. So perhaps we ought to shift the way that we think about it. Yeah, and Sam and I saw this a lot in the Pacific Association. There are a lot of people bouncing around there after they were in the majors. So, you know, like uh, Brandon Phillips was playing in the Pacific Association last year, in fact. And when we were there in 2015, Aaron Miles was there playing sometimes years after he had last played in the majors. And in fact, the late 
Tony Phillips, the, the year before he died in his 50s, he was playing in the Pacific Association. So sometimes this just happens and uh, people miss the game. And if they still have some skills for a certain level and they're still having fun and everyone else is still having fun and they're not depriving someone else of a, a shot, I guess you could say that maybe you know Manny Ramirez is uh, taking up a roster spot that someone who's potentially on the way up might be using but I think there are a lot of spots to to go around in that league and not many of those players end up going to much higher levels so I think that's less of a concern and you know then you you get a chance to see this guy and he's in the news and yeah maybe he's not polishing his legacy burnishing his legacy at that point but just the fact that he's on the field and we're talking about him just uh, gives you an opportunity to remember how good he was. And yeah. you can say, hey, that, that 48-year-old guy there, okay, he may not look all that impressive, but you know, you take your kids to the park just to see him so that you could say you did. And right. then you tell them about what he was like you know, 10, 15 years ago and, and show them those stats and those videos. So I think it's a, a net positive probably in most cases. Yeah, I think that, you know, the sort of David Ortiz retirement tour where you're going out at sort of still the top of your game, you're still hitting well, you're you're able to decide this is when I am done. Those are very rare. It's just very unusual for guys to be able to, even really great players, to be able to time it right. And so I think we have to think carefully about how to how to enjoy and embrace and appreciate the the more common <laughs> decline. And it is often very different than the pre-planned retirement tour. Even sometimes the pre-planned retirement tour comes in a season that's pretty gnarly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we all have to make peace with our exits. Yep. All right. Question from Aaron. This is actually uh, two questions on the same subject. So Aaron says, I am sitting in a physical meeting with others, but the meeting is actually online. Some people in the room have headphones, some do not. So there is a ton of echo. This got me thinking about baseball stadiums. What if there were an all-virtual baseball league and there were never going to be fans in the stands? How would a stadium designed specifically to enhance the experience at home be different from current stadium design? One thought I had was that you would design it to sound great for microphones around the stadium so fans would really hear the crack of the bat and the snap of a glove when a ball is caught. And then Brian, Patreon supporter, along the same line, says, After watching a few games without fans, I began to wonder how differently stadiums would be designed if fans weren't part of the experience, as sad as that would be, and baseball games were only consumed from home. How small could a stadium footprint get, and would that allow them to fit in more places? Would walls or netting extend as high as stadiums do now just to keep the ball inside it? Would fields be surrounded by sculptures or art installations? Maybe bullpens would be right behind the dugouts because they wouldn't interfere with prime seating. Would more camera angles be possible if blocking views weren't an issue? How cheaply could one be built without concourses, food service, hundreds of restrooms, suites, and giant parking lots? I'm curious what other possibilities come to your minds. Oh, boy. Well, I think that you, there are a couple of sort of practical uses of ballpark space that we would need to maintain. So you would probably still want to have seating behind home plate to facilitate scouting. Mm -hmm. 
So that part would need to persist. I think that you could open up a lot of different camera angles without worrying about blocking anyone. I think that would that would probably be the most noticeable difference in terms of your TV experience. Mm-hmm. I don't know, Ben, if you've been watching any of the NBA playoffs, but without fans on the one side, they just have a lot more room to maneuver seemingly with their cameras. Mm-hmm. So that part is cool. I think that the the visual representation of what's beyond the outfield fence would become more important because mm. on the one hand, I think that these emails are right that you could you could operate in a tighter physical footprint than ballparks do now because you don't need the concourses and you don't need a giant parking lot, although you still need a parking lot and baseball players drive big trucks, so there would still need to be some space for that. But your overall physical footprint, I think, could be smaller, but you still want to produce a pleasing ballpark aesthetic for the viewer at home Mm -hmm. and that would no longer include you know shots of fans and uh uh, you know bleachers and what have you but i think having something that is that sort of breaks up the the monotony of the outfield would be important although i wonder how distracting that would be i guess if it's way out in the outfield it wouldn't matter but i think you would you would have some creative opportunities to enhance the like the background aesthetic experience cuz i yeah. don't think that people would want it to go from what we're used to which is lively crowds and a bunch of color to something that is completely stark and and not at all vertical, right? Because ballparks have this great sense of verticality because of the stands. And I think that we are used to watching baseball that way and seeing play sort of take place against that backdrop. And if it just went to a completely flat, you know, your your neighborhood field, (laughs) where you can kind of, you just feel kind of, in a way, in a strange way, claustrophobic Mm -hmm. (laughs) because it is so flat. I think that that would be a little less pleasing on TV. And it would have to be kind of enclosed anyway, just for privacy's sake, or you'd just have a a bunch of people standing around walking by. So yeah, I I think uh, you're right though. You wouldn't need as much space. You wouldn't need the parking lot and, and all that as big a parking lot. So in theory, you could put it somewhere. Also, you know, you wouldn't need it to be like close to a city center necessarily, right? right. I mean, you you wouldn't have to have it be close to public transportation. You couldn't have it be in the middle of nowhere, I guess, because you'd still need the, the players to get there. But, you know, they all have buses and planes and everything. So you could have it be somewhere out in a picturesque setting right Right. it it could be in nature or something you could have a a beautiful mountain in the backdrop i mean there are some amateur level stadiums around the world that are very beautiful and and have that kind of backdrop because they don't have to be in the heart of a city so you're right you could get some really great scenery there and I think you're already starting to see more experimentation with audio and video this season. I guess you've probably noticed on the the Root Sports Mariners broadcast, they they have this fly cam now. It's like a a camera that's uh, installed sort of on a line, like from the press box to the left field foul pole, and it's remotely controlled, and it's attached to cables, and it just kind of glides around and gives you an aerial view, sort of like we've seen in, in other sports. And 
They also have this diamond cam that's in the grass in front of the batter's box, and they have mics on the outfield walls now so that you can get better sound when a ball or a person bounces off a wall. And I think MLB Network just debuted these like speed cams, these cameras on the dugout along the, the first baseline, so that as the runner is running down to first, this camera goes like on tracks on wheels along with them along the top of the dugout which would otherwise block people who were sitting there probably and right i think there have been some equivalents to those things those things have been tested before in baseball broadcasts whether mlb or otherwise but i think we're seeing more of that and uh more willingness to kind of make it this kinetic experience because people are not at the park so yeah, you could get that. You could get drones, which we have uh, discussed before, perhaps. So I think I, I don't know what else comes to mind immediately. I think the listeners both had some good suggestions. But, uh, you know, like the the field itself, the diamond is the same dimensions and outfields are going to be roughly the same size. Right. So there's only so much that you could tinker with really i guess but just having some privacy having some sense that it's an enclosed space but also opening up a little more because you don't have to have an upper deck you know you don't have to have that much seating up there so you could get a bit more sky involved yeah you could get you could get a bunch of sky involved i i will say that the fly cam is pretty is pretty nifty, um, mm-hmm. particularly when you have runners rounding third because they'll kind of swoop yeah. in as they're as they're coming home. So it's just a cool vantage on that um, action in that part of the field. Yeah, I think you could get pretty creative, but I think that people might underestimate the degree to which the the movement and color and sort of breaking up of their visual experience on TV aids with their enjoyment of it. I think even though they are sometimes not properly proportioned to one another, when you watch a game at T-Mobile and you see all the cardboard cutouts because the Mariners have just like a crazy number. Mm -hmm. They're not the only team to have such a full park, but they really have um, cardboard cutouts just all over the place. You you can kind of trick yourself for a second that that the park is full and that the sound is warranted and Mm -hmm. that it's not just, you know, something manufactured that's making that noise. So I think that if we were to deviate from that, it would, it would really take some getting used to, to have it be completely empty and not have any semblance of human presence there. And so it would become important to have something to sort of break up the visual and, and make it a little more aesthetically pleasing on TV. Yeah. I like the idea of having art as a as yeah. a part of that to kind of make each park distinctive and have it have a feel and you know it could represent the place that that team is from in a way that could be really cool. And every now and then we get a question about like, well, if you want to cut down on home runs, could you just uh, not have outfield fences or just have them really, really far away? And one of the problems with that is that you've got to have fans out there. You have to have bleachers. So if you just had no outfield fences or they were extremely distant, you wouldn't be able to put fans out there. They'd have a terrible view. So you could do that in this scenario, and uh, there have been some precedents for that in baseball's past, but I don't know if you would want that. You know, I don't know if you would want a ball to just be able to bounce for 
800 feet or something and have people chase it down and have a, a ton of inside the park or I guess it wouldn't even really be inside the park because there's no wall I don't know what right. you would even call it in that case but you could get really wild with dimensions if you wanted to just because you're not constrained by having to actually give fans a good view in the park but I don't know that those things would be actually good for baseball or, or would produce a more entertaining game but but you could if you wanted or you could put I don't know uh like targets you, you could put like the Marlins home run sculpture yeah. there could be equivalents of that everywhere in the outfield so like I don't know when you hit a home run and it it hits a, a sculpture or a light out there or a target or a bullseye or whatever and it causes some kind of pyrotechnic show or something you could get kind of creative with that I guess just because you don't have to worry about obstructing anyone's view I think that it should just be reproductions of the Marlins home run sculpture in every ballpark in America. Yeah. This should be our new civil religion. Yeah. <laughs> Mike says, the ability of pitchers to hide the ball from hitters until the last possible moment is often discussed as a reason that certain pitches may play up compared to their underlying metrics. I am wondering two things. Would there be a style of hand tattoo that would make it harder for hitters to pick up the baseball from a pitcher's hand? Like if a pitcher dyed his fingers white and got red stitches tattooed on his fingers, do you think this would improve <laughs> said pitcher's deception? And would this be legal? And uh, I note that you tweeted a picture of Mike Clevenger as a Padre yesterday, and he has finger tattoos or like arm tattoos that extend to his hands and fingers, but they're not uh, baseball colored. <laughs> so uh -uh. he's not intentionally doing that. But uh, yeah, I would I would think that if your hand looked like a baseball, <laughs> that might potentially be distracting. I imagine that it would absolutely become a problem and it would necessitate a rule. Yes. Because it would depend, I suppose, on what it counts as. There are plenty of rules in the in the rule book about the color that pitcher's gloves can be, for instance, right. because deception is good and you want to allow for that, but also there is a safety concern. You need the the hitter mm -hmm. to be able to pick up the ball eventually <laughs> or they get beaned, right? Yes. So there are specific rules in the rule book around what color stuff can be. And there's a rule in the rule book on undue commercialization. Mm. So it says, in fact, why do I have this handy, Ben? <laughs> not surprised. <sighs> Playing equipment, including but not limited to the bases, pitchers, plate, baseball, bats, uniforms, catcher's mitts, first baseman's gloves, infielder and outfielder's gloves. I love that they just felt the need to specify every potential glove. They, <laughs> they couldn't say all of the gloves. Protective helmets, as detailed in the provisions of this rule, shall not contain any undue commercialization of the product. Designations by the manufacturer on any such equipment must be in good taste as to the side and content of the manufacturer's logo or the brand name of the item. The provisions of this rule shall apply to professional leagues only. So an interesting thing about this is that the language of this rule, I think, has changed because people might remember that I think it's Javier Baez has the MLB logo tattooed on his yeah. neck. And I think that there was a time where that was potentially in violation of this rule because you couldn't have any logos displayed at all that weren't approved. Uh -huh. But anyhow, I don't think that this would count as commercialization if you were just trying to mimic a baseball. But I think that they would be like, so, hey, bad news about that tattoo you just spent a bunch of money on. <laughs> right. Got to get rid of that because it's not safe. 
Yeah, because every now and then you will see a, a manager come out and tell the umpire to look at something that's going on with a pitcher that could be distracting, right? Like their sleeve is flapping a lot or, I don't know, they're wearing some bracelet or, or something that could potentially be distracting. And sometimes they'll make them change that or, you know, put on long sleeves or, or take off a shirt or whatever or glove colors, as you mentioned. I don't know what you do if someone shows up with a, a baseball tattooed hand like you do you just yeah. make them remove it because that hurts <laughs> but I guess you would have to right like you just right. have to say they're not eligible to pitch unless they get this tattoo removed or, or covered in some way it, it wouldn't be as easy a fix <laughs> but yeah I, I guess you'd have to do that yeah I wonder if the solution would be I wonder I mean they would never do this because they'd be worried about how it interacts with the ball and substances and whatnot. But I wonder if they would ever grant an exception to have to wear like a batting glove on your pitching mm. hand. They would, wouldn't do that. They could absolutely would throw a, a ball like that. I, yeah. I don't even know if you could do that. Yeah. They wouldn't I, let you do it. Yeah. I don't recommend this. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a pretty bad idea. Also, I think if you're going to do it, you should not be a professional baseball player because if you have a baseball hand tattoo, everyone's going to be like, hey, do you play ball? And you should just say no and then not explain anymore. <laughs> right. You should be like, no, I don't. I don't know why you'd ask me that. Tomo says, suppose all of a sudden someone came to the present from a year ago by time machine. If they were only allowed to see current game schedules and results, tuning out all the media like TV or internet news, and then notice the weirdness of the season, shortened season, a couple of teams suddenly stopping playing games, etc., do you think they could speculate that a pandemic is happening? Could they guess that this is caused by a pandemic? I don't know that pandemic would be the first thing you would pick. I think it would be among the first five things you might guess. Mm -hmm. I think that you... You would certainly assume that some disaster had befallen the country. I'm thinking about which teams were immediately affected from a cancellation perspective. So you had the Marlins and then you had other teams in the East, but not necessarily teams in Florida. So I think that that would probably be your first clue that -hmm. there was some illness-related incident. Because if everything, you know, if... If the teams that had had cancellations and postponements due to COVID had been, say, the Marlins and the Rays, you might assume some sort of natural disaster had befallen the state of Florida. Yes. But I think that the geographic distribution of those teams, right, that it was the Marlins and then the Phillies had a bunch of waiting around to do, and then eventually the Cardinals had a bunch of waiting around to do, and you didn't have, you know, both New York teams or both Bay Area teams or what have you sort of have issues right away, that would be what might send you off the the path of, oh, there was a hurricane or there was an earthquake or, I mean, I think... I think we would get there in pretty short and disturbing order, actually. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing your mind would probably go to is a, a work stoppage, right? A, a, a strike or something. But it's not a year when the CBA is expiring. So it, it would be a strange time for that to have happened. Right. So that would probably still initially seem more likely than this current crisis that we've had. But then... When the games start and you see that some teams are playing but other teams are not for weeks at a time, like then you know it's not just a work stoppage at that point. And right. then could it be 
natural disasters that have only occurred in certain places, you know, like if it were the the Marlins not playing for weeks or the Cardinals not playing for weeks, I, I guess it, it could be some sort of flood or, or hurricane or something in those right. cities, but... But you're right, it was sort of broad and, and extended to other teams too, and yet not every team. So I I think at first you'd guess work stoppage. Then once you saw that the season had started and most teams were playing but not all, then maybe at first you'd think, okay, it's just weird weather or an earthquake or, or something or who knows what. But I think you would eventually get there. Yeah. I think eventually you would reason your way out to it, whether it's a pandemic or some other sort of national disaster. I don't know. But yeah, I think you'd get there. Just it wouldn't be your first guess necessarily. Yeah, I don't think it would be your first guess. But I think that you could reason your way to to it, like I said, probably within your first five. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. And I will... End with a a stat blast here, but I've got one more regular question on my list, and it comes from Zeke, and the subject line was just, let's get weird. So we have uh, already discussed the possibility of a pitcher with a, a hand tattooed to look like a baseball, but this is weirder than that. This is about the baseballs themselves. Zeke says, what if it is discovered that the baseballs used by MLB are not manufactured, but in fact sentient beings? that have been harvested or farmed for use in the game, and the changes in the ball composition in recent years are in fact evolutionary changes to their species. Mm. The balls cannot communicate with us in any way, so we don't know their thoughts on being used for the sport, but MLB admits to having covered up the origins of the balls for years. It is universally agreed that moving to a manufactured ball will produce dramatically different effects and that the only way the sport remains similar to what we know today is to continue to use the living balls. How would you react to such a revelation? Where does this fall on the spectrum of sports scandals? Would the sport die off? Does PETA prevent games from being played? So in this scenario, we are subjecting something with sentience to Aaron Judge's bat. Like, yes. a lot of the time? Yes. <laughs> I think that it would be the, the biggest scandal in sports history. I think it would be, too, that it was covered up for all these years. But, again, we can't communicate with the balls, with the, the ball species. How so do we, don't we know, know how they feel about then? this? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> I don't know exactly how we know. But uh, if you were able to detect that they were organic, I mean, I guess they are made of organic material, but if you're able to detect that they were alive, one question is like, is the hand stitching that we know goes on, is that all a ruse? Is that fake? Is MLB just uh, plucking these balls off a bush or something? Or are they actually manufacturing them and they're becoming sentient at some point in the manufacturing process? I I don't know the answer to that. So maybe that changes things because if you're creating the balls, if you're giving life to them for the purpose of use in games, maybe that's different from if you're just finding them fully formed somewhere else. MLB has had a a secret supply of naturally occurring baseballs that are are just uh, on a tree or uh, growing somewhere. But again, they're sentient and they, I would say the following, this doesn't make sense. I mean, clearly it doesn't make sense, but are they then able to determine how far they go? 
Right, because I, it seems strange to me. Let's apply some logic to this completely <laughs> yeah, wild question. That's what's needed here. It seems odd to me that a sentient thing hit by Aaron Judge's bat would elect to reward Aaron Judge for that cruelty. That seems mm. that seems very strange. Yeah. How do we know they're sentient, Ben? I know that like I'm supposed to just take that as a given <laughs> and I'm supposed to move on. Mm-hmm. But I can't, are only the major league balls sentient, but all the ones used in college baseball or in little league are tiny children (laughs) battering (laughs) sentient living things for their own amusement. Is the kid in the John Smoltz commercial who goes, play ball, is he a (laughs) terrible monster? I mean, we know he is because he is irritating as all get out, but have we learned a new dimension of his monstrousness? But what if the balls enjoy being batted? What if that is their <laughs> oh, no. purpose in life? I mean, there are a lot of uh, species on Earth that exist and thrive in conditions that we would consider inhospitable to life and that we would not find to be fulfilling existences, and yet they are perfectly fine with it. They have evolved to uh, be suited to those conditions. So maybe baseballs want to be batted. Maybe that's their goal in life. So they're like the the sport equivalent of all the slimy fish that live by vents yeah, at the bottom of the right. sea? They're extremophiles. Yeah, that's, uh, that's their thing. Again, that you'd be depriving them of of their of their source of fulfillment if you no longer allowed them to be. But sometimes to their death. Sometimes, sometimes the cover just comes right off the ball. Yeah, absolutely. It's and and do they have do they have control over their sentient? But like, do they have control over their own physical dimensions? So my question is this: If you had a sentient baseball, is that baseball electing to have seams of a particular height, or say a um, an especially uh, tightly wound core, or are they just you know? Is there as much variation among the baseball community as there is among the human community and some of them just happen to be home run balls and others don't. And does a home run ball that is then fouled off feel like it has missed its purpose and <laughs> is not able to, to to fulfill its own purpose in, in its weird spherical right. life? And also, how do they reproduce, Ben, if they're sentient? Oof. And also... <laughs> <laughs> Why are they suddenly on if if their purpose in life is to be hit by a bat are the bats also sentient are they in communicado are they in cahoots with right. each other and also symbiotic life forms did they evolve together or- right <laughs> Right. Right. And also and also, why are they suddenly disinterested in being baseballs that are that are used in baseball games? Is this another example of Major League Baseball's disregard for labor? Are they trying to unionize? Are they on strike? Ben. Yeah. I don't think they can control how hard they're hit in this scenario. I think Zika's suggesting that they have just evolved different properties 
And that is why the ball is behaving differently these days. And so maybe that is why this has finally come to light, that MLB has been covering up this truth about the balls for years. But now that they have suddenly begun to behave in atypical ways, and we're all suspicious about why that is, they finally come forward and say they've been alive the whole time and they're changing. (laughs) So is their atypical behavior a protest for their working conditions? It could just be naturally occurring. Maybe it's just a genetic mutation. Or maybe they are protesting, but even though they are sentient, we can't communicate with them, and this is the only way they have to indicate to us that they are displeased with their lot in life. That could be too. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Humans have gotten taller over time. Maybe they've just evolved bigger seams, higher seams, lower seams, whatever it is. This is, uh, gosh... The baseballs are also drinking milk that has antibiotics in it, is what we're learning. (laughs) That could be. Maybe their conditions have improved in some similar way. So I don't know. This is tough. I was actually, I've been watching a lot of Star Trek The Next Generation lately with my wife. And I just watched an episode last night, the the season three premiere, which is called Evolution. And it has a storyline very similar to this one, actually, where... Wesley Crusher is doing a a science experiment with some nanites and a couple of them escape and they go together and they evolve intelligence and there are all these nanites that uh, are in the Enterprise and are causing all kind of problems with the ship's computer and uh, at first they're just going to exterminate them because they think they're just a, a bug, they're just a machine that's gone haywire, but then it turns out that they can communicate and they have a collective intelligence And it all works out because they're able to just go into Data's circuitry and he translates. And so they speak through him and they come to a a kind of agreement. But if we can't communicate with the baseballs here, I don't know what we're going to do. That episode, actually, it uh, guest stars Ken Jenkins, famous for playing Dr. Kelso from Scrubs. And he has a, a long monologue about baseball in that episode where he talks about how the game died out because people got too impatient and, uh, it doesn't exist anymore but he loves the stats and he plays out entire seasons in his mind just by looking at the stat lines he would definitely be a, a fan graphs reader effectively wild listener do you know baseball yes my father taught it to me when i was young <laughs> once centuries ago it was the beloved national pastime of the americas wesley abandoned by a society that prized fast food and faster games lost to impatience but I have seen the great players make the great plays do you recreate them on a holodeck no in here with the knowledge of statistics runs hits and errors times at bat box scores men like us do not need holodecks Wesley I have played seasons in my mind. So that's just kind of a weird coincidence, but this is a very TNG scenario here. And I think if uh, Captain Picard were in charge and he discovered that the balls were alive, he would have to, I guess, make sure that he was not doing any harm to that life form and the prime directive would come into play here. And uh, I think you would have to cease play for a while until you could hopefully determine in some way whether you were harming the baseballs or whether they were willing participants in the sport. Otherwise, just imagine the moral hazard of watching a game knowing that these living beings were being battered for our entertainment. 
Yeah, I would I would think of several players who seem to be very nice guys very differently. Yes. Like I think that if this is true and the players knew about it. Now that's an important proviso because yes. maybe they don't know. Right. And then you can continue to think that like Nelson Cruz is a super cool guy because he seems to be a lovely human being who helps his community and does good stuff. But mm-hmm. if he knows he's yeah. a monster, would you rather evolve into a nana of Ascension Baseball <laughs> or, <laughs> or um, wasn't there a Voyager episode where Janeway and Paris evolved into like salamanders giant salamanders or something <laughs> yeah right it's we are so search. cool yeah. ben yes we're the cool you know what we could be stand-up comedians <laughs> i mean we couldn't because we're not funny in that way we are funny i if i if i can venture to say that i think we are amusing but i don't think we're like stand-up comedy amusing uh-huh. but we're awkward in a sufficient in a sufficient way yeah okay yeah um, okay I'll, uh, this is getting weird. This is running off the rails in a very Friday afternoon way. <laughs> I'll uh, I'll quickly tie this up with a, a Stat Blast. This uh, Stat Blast song cover comes from Sean Rudman. Thank you, Sean. This question comes from RB. He says, as of Tuesday night, the Blue Jays have played 34 games, 16 of which have been decided by one run. I have a bet on their total win, so every game has been heart-stopping. What is the highest percentage of one-run games a team has had in a season? I have to imagine that nearly 50% blows away the record. Last year, in 162 games, the Giants had 54, which was by far the most in the majors and still only 33%. Just wondering if anyone has had that percentage ever, and I know you all know how to look it up, and that is true. You can use Baseball Reference StatHead to look this up. Actually, you can go to the Team Pitching Game Finder, and you can look for games with a run difference differential between one and negative one so you do get some ties in there for some old-timey teams but the record here is 75 75 games that were decided by a a one-run margin the 1971 Astros went 32 and 43 in those games and that was obviously out of uh, 162 so that's uh that's a lot. That's that's oh, uh man. yeah, that's more than 46% of games that year were uh were one run and I there are some in that range I will link to the the full list if you're interested and there are a lot of dead ball teams here and and low scoring season teams but uh I think that would be quite heart-stopping. And the the 1971 Astros were not a particularly good team. They were 79 and 83. But I guess if you wanted to make a mediocre season like that 
entertaining or suspenseful i guess that's one way to do it right just have a whole lot of one-run games i would be a nervous wreck yeah can you imagine either as a fan or a player the anxiety and then you get into it late and you look up and you go oh god we're doing this again (laughs) right (laughs) uh There'd be a a large element of randomness to your season there, too, because one-run outcomes are pretty random. So, yeah, that would be... As someone who had money riding on it, as RP does with the Blue Jays, that would... Mm probably be a little too intense for me or if I were a fan of that team if I were a neutral observer then uh, I guess I would enjoy that but yeah that's uh boy that's adrenaline inducing yeah I don't think I would care for that at all Mm -hmm. I think it's good to have games that feel close and feel like they have stakes but you need a break every now and again because Mm -hmm. we're anxious creatures and too much of it makes us miserable Mm mm-hmm Okay, and then closing stat blasty question from Russell Eason, who says, At the time of writing, three players for Cleveland have batted in the same spot of the lineup for all of the 2020 season, Ramirez, Lindor, and Santana in the two to four spots. I thought this was quite remarkable, and a cursory glance at the other 29 teams found just a further three individuals, Goldschmidt, Merrifield, and Miguel Cabrera. This leads me to the question of how many players have done this over a complete season, and has any team had more than one person do it? So I got an answer on this from listener Adam Ott and his RetroSheet database, and he sent me a spreadsheet, which I will put online, but it's not that rare, really, in uh, just not a full, full season if you're limiting it to players who played in all 162 games for their team and batted in the same spot every time. That has happened, but it is rare. Joey Votto is the last to do it. In 2017, he batted third for the Reds 162 times. Freddie Freeman did for the Braves in 2014, Prince Fielder for the Tigers in 2012, and Prince Fielder actually for the Brewers in 2011, (laughs) batted cleanup in both of those years, and Ichiro in his 2010 season for the Mariners, he batted leadoff 162 times. And Prince Fielder, Justin Morneau, Ryan Zimmerman, A-Rod, and Carlos Delgado are the only other ones who've done it in this century. But it is uh, fairly common. Adam also sent guys with a, a minimum of 100 games played. And there are, let's see, just in this decade since 2010, there have been 93 guys who've played at least 100 games for a team and have batted in the same spot in the lineup in each of those games. So it's not that unusual, really. But uh, the last time that two teammates started every game and batted in the same spot was Cal Ripken and Eddie Murray batted three and four for the Orioles in 1984 every single day. Before that, it hadn't happened since 1949. And Ramirez, Lindor, and Santana could be the first trio of teammates to do it for an entire season if they continue to. Although, obviously, 60 games would make that much easier than 162. Yeah, I would imagine that the batting the batting order placement is far less surprising or strange than, or unusual, I would imagine, than playing every day. Yes, yes. So right. I think that tends to be the gating factor both historically and even, and perhaps especially now because uh, you're keen to give even very good players days off to maintain their health. Mm-hmm. And Adam was looking at it just in starts. So he found 
that these were the guys who had done it when they had actually been in the starting lineup. So, for instance, Mike Trout last year, he batted in the the number two spot for the Angels in all of his 133 starts, but he also had a, a couple of other appearances, pinch hit appearances or defensive substitutions or whatever. So Adam didn't count those because he might enter the lineup in a different spot than you would have been otherwise. But yeah, there's uh, a lot of lineup variability these days. I, I think we have uh, talked about that before on the show that maybe lineups, it's uh, there are more unique lineups than there used to be, but still not that uncommon if you're someone who is like a leadoff guy or a number two hitter or a cleanup guy. Yeah, it's not uncommon for that to be your role every single day. Right. Okay, so we will end on that note. You didn't tell me if you'd rather be a baseball or a salamander. Oh, I think I'd rather be a salamander, right? Just I don't more, know that they uh, were actually salamanders, but they kind of looked like them, and they yeah, were they very were some sort of lizard. They were very large. Yeah, baseballs can't really move unless they are propelled, which is right. a limitation. So I think I'd rather be a salamander and just uh, be able to move around at I will. I think I'm going to have nightmares about sentient baseballs. <laughs> Me too. Every now and then you see like a, a graphic of like a baseball being hit and it's screaming or something like right. it has a mouth and and just, yeah, now I'm imagining that it's just like silently screaming as it's being hit and I'm going to try to banish that image from my mind. Well, this brings to mind and then I swear we will go, but <laughs> have you noticed, I think I've tweeted about this before, but I saw it again, perhaps on a Cubs broadcast the other night and, and continue to just be haunted by it there is a hot dog brand that advertises itself behind home plate at games for midwestern teams i think that i've seen it in cleveland and also chicago and perhaps in milwaukee and it is a hot dog with a bite out of it and a thought bubble that says hey biter biter and i hate it ben yeah because it suggests that this hot dog has hopes and dreams and is being slowly murdered via cuisine. That is disturbing. I, it's I mean, very upsetting. I guess we all know where hot dogs come from. <laughs> they were, well, sure. They were originally part of, of a being. And uh, yes. I guess uh, a lot of people who consume hot dogs are, are kind of okay with that. But at least they're not being consumed as they are forming thoughts, which uh, is more disturbing, perhaps. Yeah, I I am just very, it's very upsetting. And I I don't know if it's supposed to be guilting the consumer of the hot dog. But anyway, just, uh, you know, think think carefully before you endow sentience <laughs> to a yeah. non-sentient thing, because right. it makes a lot very strange and uncomfortable. Yeah, don't anthropomorphize food because you have to eat it. Yeah, no, thank you. (laughs) No, thank you. All right. All right. Have a good weekend, Ben. You too. All right. I just read an article by Rob Arthur at Baseball Prospectus about how the drag on the baseball has been especially inconsistent this season. Although it's not flying quite as far as it was last season, it is fluctuating a lot more from game to game and week to week than it has up until this point. Now I'm wondering if that is a cry for help. This adds a new dimension to Sam's stat blast on our last episode about which players use up the most baseballs. Maybe they're the ones with the most baseball blood on their hands. Now I'm wondering if we've misunderstood what the dead ball era meant all this time. Maybe the live ball era is when the ball attains sentience. 
Happy to see that Williams Astadio made his presence felt in his comeback game. He was the extra runner in the eighth inning of what was supposed to be a seven-inning game, and he scored the winning run for the Twins, making a difference already. Also, I'm sure that our Star Trek banter there probably summoned the memory for some of you of Take Me Out to the Hall of Suite, the Deep Space Nine episode. Deep Space Nine, definitely a baseball show. Michael Bauman and I did an episode of the Ringer MLB show on that episode of Deep Space Nine with Ira Stephen Bear. So I will link to that in case you haven't heard it and want to check it out. Ben Sisko, big baseball fan. Lastly, wanted to mention that Russell Carlton did some additional research. He published a follow-up at BP on the shift. So as Meg mentioned earlier, Russell and Alex Victorman from Sports Info Solutions were on the podcast last week to debate or discuss whether the shift actually works. Russell has argued that it doesn't work or that it's overused at least, and that's because he has found in the past that it's associated with more walks. So pitchers pitching in front of the shift walk more batters, and that seems to cancel out the benefit of the shift. And there is truth to that, but Russell did a deeper dive and found that there's more at work here, and it turns out that handedness is particularly important. So I'm just reading from his piece here, which I will link to. The shift does seem to work for reducing Babbitt for everyone the way that it's supposed to, a little better for lefties than righties, but profit is profit. The walk penalty is still a real thing. We see that walk rates do go up in front of the shift on both sides of the plate. What differs is that the shift also seems to increase the number of strikeouts among left-handed batters as well, while having the completely opposite effect for righties. Righties also see an increase in their extra base hits and their home run output, while for lefties it's mostly flat. Handedness is clearly the key variable. With lefties, the shift does steal back more outs than it gives away in walks, though surprisingly in the form of strikeouts. It seems that pitchers go for a style of pitching which favors a lack of contact, which does produce more walks, but also more Ks. Considering everything, the shift is a net positive against lefty swingers, not so much for righties, where the ball tends to go into play more with destructive results. Major League teams have been increasing the rate at which they have been shifting everyone left and right, while they've been increasing their proportion of shifts on left-handed batters on which they accrue value. They've also been increasing their percentage of shifts against right-handed batters, which are toxic and cancel out much of the benefit that they would have gotten by just sticking to shifting the lefties. He adds, this means that much of my own writing on the topic has been conflating two different effects. The walk penalty is a real thing, and I stand by it. I assume that this was what was driving the finding that the shift was a net positive. It certainly doesn't help, but what seems to have been driving the bus is that somehow shifting against right-handed batters supercharges them and reduces their interest in strikeouts. Even though the majority of shifts are done against lefties, the negative effect of shifting against righties is much greater than the effect of the benefit of shifting against lefties. So the net effect of these missing righty strikeouts and the fact that some portion of them became extra base hits and home runs was turning the shift into an overall negative. Teams were doing something right and something wrong at the same time. So on the whole, shifts against lefty batters, good. Shifts against righty batters, bad. And so bad, Russell says, that it actually outweighs the value that teams get from shifting lefty batters. Maybe there are certain righties it still makes sense to shift against, but it would appear that that is happening too often. But again, this is a developing story. We are learning more about this by the week. And you can continue to learn more about it by listening to Effectively Wild, which can continue to happen if you support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Sean Taggart, Alex Tam, Colin O'Reilly, Paul Haman, 
and Ben Gosby. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg and Sam coming via email at podcastfangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance, and we hope you have a wonderful long weekend. We will be back to talk to you again early next week.